If you had the power of the sun at your fingertips, does that give you the right to rule? And in a world where the ruling class has literal godlike power, how can there ever be true equality? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Django Wexler. His most recent novel is Ashes of the Sun, out now from Orbit Books. Django and I talk about the art of receiving critique, the ethics of training young children into Jedi, and how to design fantasy worlds to fit the story that you want to tell. Okay, okay, enough intro. Time to hand it off to pass me and dive right into the interview. Django Wexler, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, hi. Uh, glad you were able to take time out of your, I'm sure, busy traveling schedule lately to uh, <laughs> sit down and do this. It's been it's been quieter. It's definitely been quieter. I'm getting more done, though. Yeah, I suppose that's the silver lining to all of this. Right. Yeah, I've got more words written this year than some years. Well, I guess uh, to start things off with a very uh, serious, super important question. What's your favorite Star Wars movie? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> all right. I'm going to be a little iconoclastic and say that it's probably Return of the Jedi, which I know fans of the original trilogy will be like, but what about Empire? Empire is the best. And Empire is probably, objectively speaking, the best of the Star Wars movies. But I love the space battle in Return of the Jedi. And that was the stuff that really sort of captured my imagination first about Star Wars. I love the ships and the fighters, you know, all that stuff. I've always loved games that do that kind of thing. And that was what attracted me to the Star Wars Expanded Universe and the like Grand Admiral Thrawn books where all the space fighting scenes. So um, so Return of the Jedi has the best space battle. And so I got super into that. Um, and so I go with Return of the Jedi. It's clearly better. I mean, obviously, the prequels are not very good. And we could talk about the sequel movies, but I'd still take the original trilogy over them, over any of the five sequel movies. Fair enough. I am objectively probably a terrible star wars fan because i think i've seen the original trilogy once when i was younger than 10 that's for sure so i don't remember a lot so really kind of like the quintessential star wars for me is like phantom menace and uh, attack of the clones (laughs) yeah I mean, I love Star Wars. It's always hard because I never want to be too critical of Star Wars because I love it so. But like the prequel trilogy is not good. There's there's no way yeah. around that. That that is very uh, fair. And uh, you know, there's there are good things in it, uh, as as my spouse would sometimes say, uh, but uh, it's not good. Well, uh, I guess moving on. Can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? I actually was thinking about this question, and I don't think that I can. I think it was before I can remember, because it was very young. It's just always been the stuff that I loved and the stuff that I gravitated to. I was a very precocious reader as a kid, so I didn't spend a lot of time with like age-appropriate literature. It doesn't help that I'm old enough that when I was a kid, young adult literature was pretty crappy because it's the sort of pre-Harry Potter dark times. Uh, I used to joke that what we had was like long series written by hack writers like the Boxcar Children and uh, Hardy Boys and so on. And then... Uh, Newbery award-winning books about dead dogs. Those were our choices as kids. Um, And I didn't like either of those. Yeah. Yeah, I had to read a lot of those going through school. 
so modern YA is, of course, way better, uh, as I learned when I kind of got back into it. But at the time, I just started going to the science fiction section in the adult shelf and just reading all of that stuff. It was just what attracted me. It doesn't help that a lot of what we would now consider YA was like shelved in the SFF section, like Alana, for example, was in there. And that's how I found that. And like the Enchanted Forest Chronicles, which like if they were published today would definitely be YA. But like at the time, they were just science fiction fantasy. So that's just kind of where I went to. And it, it there's never been a time when that wasn't my main focus. Start playing D and D when I was like ten years old. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I just recently, actually, one of my quarantine projects is to pick up D and D. So I have maybe five sessions under my belt now. I've been playing D and D for a long time, although not in the last probably five or eight years. Not really much. I know it. It's difficult to play D and D and write for me at the same time because. It just kind of draws from that same creative well, at least when I'm DMing, which I usually am. So I kinda I kinda haven't been doing that. But I was I was a huge D D and other role-playing games junkie from, you know, ten or eleven all the way through, you know, the end of college. And I guess uh, while we're on that topic, are there any similar games to D D or just other tabletop games that you'd recommend for people looking to give it a try? <laughs> See, I don't know, because a lot of the games we played were pretty bad, right? Like, um, I played a lot of a game called Rifts, which is a Palladium system that has this, like, really creative world, but the rule set is, like, objectively terrible. My friends and I tried to, like, go back and actually have a sort of nostalgia game of this when we got back together. Not recently, but, you know, post-college. And we couldn't do it because we had forgotten the sort of elaborate network of house rules and rulings that, like, let us make this into an actually playable system. So, like, while that is a game that, you know, has a special part of my childhood in it, it's not something I would, like, recommend to people to check out. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of that, that, you know, especially for role-playing games in particular among tabletop games, it's so much more about the people you're playing with and, you know, the stories that you're telling than it is literally about the system that you're running it in. Um, I think you can often overemphasize system at the, at the fault of anything else. You can have fun in almost any system. And conversely, you can have a terrible time in a really well-designed system. So it's not that system is meaningless. It can like help or hinder, but like, it's not the be all end all that it's sometimes made out to be. Yeah, I think the biggest surprise for me was that I, I was kind of like what you're saying where, uh, I mean, yes, the rules are there, they help, but all of the other stuff is what's more fun to me. Like, sure, like worry about whatever moves you end up getting and the spells you learn, but like, I just like having fun with friends and goofing off and getting into character. Yeah, it's much more important that your your group and the DM, GM, whatever the role is called, be sort of on the same page as far as what kind of game they want to run um, and then that the system be like the objectively perfect system because I've had far more bad games playing in a good system but with players who sort of disagree about what they want to do and one group just wants to kill everything and one group you know want doesn't want that than you know any other problem uh, well I guess while we're in the past, how did you originally decide to become a writer? It was actually kind of a direct outgrowth of uh, role-playing games. 
I mean, I guess this is how I started writing, how I decided to become a writer is a slightly like in terms of a career path is a slightly different question. But I got sort of drafted into GMing for role playing games fairly early because we didn't have enough GMs. And so they were always trying to get people to do it. And I really liked it. And so I spent a lot of time like writing campaigns and coming up with adventures and, you know, all the things that GMs do. And I found it eventually a little bit frustrating because I had, you know, I was reading a lot of fantasy and science fiction and I really wanted to like generate the kinds of stories that I was seeing in those, but our groups were not really up for that. They were much more of just like, we're going to shoot everybody and kill everything and loot and gain experience. And that's all we wanted right at the time. And so I think writing was, was originally kind of like, I'm frustrated with these players who are not going along with my like, my carefully crafted intrigue plot and they're just attacking everything. And so that's, that's kind of where I got started. The proximate cause was that my friend Luke started a writing group. Um, when he was in senior year, I think he was like padding his, uh, college applications essay or something <laughs> like that. He started this writing group, which I think only met for one session, and, but I like wrote a story for it and I was like, ah, this is actually really fun. And then like, we never met again, but I found some more writing groups online and, I submitted that first story to Asimov's. They didn't take it, of course. <laughs> Nor should they have. I finally sold the story to Asimov's like five years ago, and it was it was kind of like I finally got there. Yeah, that that probably felt pretty good if that was like your first thing you sent off, and then like you finally actually got a story in there. I think that was what the end of the war. Yes, the end of the war. One of my favorite stories, actually, in in my short story things. I don't write many short stories, but every so often. I have an idea for something. Most of my ideas are like giant honking trilogies. And so I can only do so. <laughs> yeah. So it's always a relief when I have an idea that's like actually can fit into 8,000 words or whatever. Yeah. Well, so you're actually one of the fairly few writers I've spoken to who has a degree in creative writing. Uh, so are there any key takeaways from that program that have helped you in your career? Um, it's interesting. I mean... I would say, first of all, you absolutely don't need a degree in creative writing to be a writer, just self-evident because most writers don't have one. It was never really like my plan. You know, I went to, to Carnegie Mellon, which is a sort of famous computer science school, and I was I did computer science there. Um, but we had a required minor, and I was getting mine in creative writing because that was a, kind of what I was into. And it turns out that I can also get I could get the double degree with only a few more classes. And, you know, I, I'm a kind of chronic overachiever nerd type. So taking a few more classes was not a huge hardship. Um, so I did it, but I never actually thought it would be like my career. It was fun. I'd say the main takeaway from creative writing in terms of the classes was definitely the workshops. Creative writing is so personal. It's really hard to get sort of instruction in it in a classroom setting. But what you can get, at least for me, it didn't work that well. But what you can get is workshop time. And that was really useful. Just the sheer sort of practice in the skill of giving and taking critique is something that every writer needs to get, I think, somehow. And you don't have to have a degree to get that. You can just go to a critique group. But like, the fact that, you know, dozens of hours of this were required as part of this degree definitely was a help to me. And taking critique in particular is a real skill. You have to learn to sort of walk the line between taking on board everything everyone says 
and rejecting everything because you don't understand my genius, right? And and sort of somewhere between those two extremes is sanity, uh, but it can be hard to find. Um, and so doing this critique with a lot of people of different types, you know, some people were sort of in creative writing on a lark. Some people were like serious writers. Some people were serious writers, but not in any field close enough to mine that they knew what I was doing. So like, you know, you get these critiques back and you'd be like, okay, this person's just dumb. This person is good, but like they don't understand this story because they're want to write nonfiction memoirs or whatever. And they're not into my science fiction fantasy. And then like out of the 20 people in the class, you've got, okay, these are the like five people whose opinions are like really good and I should pay attention to. Yeah, that's consistently what I hear is, is one of the hardest things, but the most important things is just learning how, and actually, I guess, learning how to find sources for uh, that critical feedback as well as learning how to take it. It's hard because, I mean, especially when you're writing novels, to ask someone for feedback, you're asking a lot, right? Uh, you know, reading a whole novel and going through it is a lot of work. And so that's really difficult. So, I mean, what do you do now? Where are your uh, go-to sources for critique? I mean, it's a li- it helps a little once you're published and you have an editor who is actually paid to do this. Um, so if you have an editor that you can work well with, that's a huge help. And um, I've been lucky in that my editors have, for the most part, been really good. I have a few friends, basically, who I exchange critiques with, um, either people that I met independently or people that I met through a writing group. And then just kind of after I stopped going to the writing group was like, hey, do you want to keep exchanging stuff? That's usually the technique I recommend if you need to find someone is go to some writing groups, especially if you're a novelist. Most writing groups are not going to work for you because they don't do novels. Usually they do short fiction because obviously reading novels takes forever and ever. But do it anyway, you know, do some short fiction, find some people who you think you're compatible with and whose feedback you respect, and then ask them sort of privately if they'd be willing to do like an exchange with you where you read their stuff and vice versa. That's a good way to to find people. Well, so with a background and because I know you said uh, creative writing was one of your degrees, but the other one, I believe, is computer science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so like with your background being in artificial intelligence as well, I'm actually kind of surprised that so much of your work is fantasy rather than science fiction. Uh, so why is that? It's funny, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, I used to be much more of a science fiction reader and writer, and I have kind of drifted fantasy word over the years. So by the time I got to actually publishing, it was mostly fantasy. Part of it is, it's weird. I can read science fiction of any kind of hardness level, but I have a very hard time writing it if I don't have a good grasp on the sort of science and the underlying structure of it, um, the sort of hardness of it, uh, which tends to restrict the kind of things that I can write about. It's an odd quirk because, you know, I feel and I may get over it someday so that I can write rollicking space opera. But I, I tend to think too hard about backgrounds of metaphysics, and it works better in fantasy than it does in science fiction. Um, I've written a few science fiction pieces. The End of the War is one of them. Um, there's a couple other short pieces, but uh, but mostly fantasy. Um, and I think, I don't know, fantasy is nice because you can design the world to sort of be play out the scenario that you want it to play out. For shadow campaigns, for example, I wanted to write about sort of Napoleonic warfare. And so that meant I can set up the world design so that this is 
is where we're at in terms of technology, but then also that the magic doesn't kind of eclipse that or make it pointless. So the magic in shadow campaigns is very sort of subtle and quiet compared to, you know, Wheel of Time or Malazan Book of the Fallen type magic. Yeah, that would have uh, ended quite a few of those plot lines pretty quickly if you had that. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, part of the problem in Wheel of Time is like all the armies always seem a little pointless because the magic users, the channelers are so powerful that like basically whichever one wins the fight between channelers is going to wipe out the army of the other side anyway. Malazan Book of the Fallen, I think, actually says that explicitly. One of the characters is like, man, it was a waste of time training all these soldiers since they all get wiped out by the wizards instantaneously. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably one of the reasons why I haven't actually read either of those series. So I know that's like handing in my fantasy fan card right there. <laughs> nah, you don't have to. It, just because something is 20 books long doesn't make it essential. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to like it. No one should slog through things that they hate. That's my hot I feel very strongly about that as well, uh, and yet I still sometimes find myself slogging through. It's like fear of missing out, I guess. There's a little bit of that. I've said sometimes that there can be, especially with really long series, there's this impression that everyone likes them, but I think that's partly because <laughs> all the people who didn't like them obviously didn't finish because it's so long. And so... Uh, it creates this kind of weird Stockholm syndrome, which is like, it's not that there's anything wrong with those series, but like, you know, if they're not to your taste, you know, you shouldn't like grit your teeth and force your way through them. Like go find something you like. Life is too short to read books that you're not enjoying. Yeah, I agree 100%. And if they are your thing, then great. So, you know, obviously, you know, more power to you. And, you know, I enjoy many of that things, but don't want to, you know, exclude everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, from a business perspective, you have an impressively diverse catalog of books to your name. You've published books with, I think, three of the big five traditional publishers, and you've self-published a couple of novellas that were originally through a small press, and you've hopped around between several subgenres and written books towards uh, middle grade, young adult, and adult fantasy readers. So I guess how much of this diversification was intentional on your part, and what impact do you think it's had on your career so far? Some of it was definitely intentional, both from a sort of career point of view that, you know, it's fun to try a bunch of things and you never know what's going to be a big hit. So you might as well bounce around a little bit. Some of it's just from the kind of stuff I want to do point of view that, you know, whether I enjoy it. It was a lot of fun, for example, when I was writing Shadow Campaigns and Forbidden Library to sort of go back and forth between them because the Shadow Campaigns books are so big that they were an enormous amount of work to finish, obviously. And then after that, picking up these middle grade books, which are, you know, they're not simpler in terms of writing, but they're simpler structurally. They don't have the sort of complicated multiple points of view and multiple plot lines that the larger books do. And they're also much shorter. So, you know, you start the middle grade book and you're like, oh, you know, you start at the beginning and you keep going for 70,000 words. And then you're like, oh, I guess I'm done. You know, the book is over. Whereas like when the Shadow Campaigns books are 200,000 words long, you'd just be getting barely started. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that like in terms of like my actual writing experience, that was that was good. So it's a bit of both of those things. You know, some of the jumping around between publishers has been deliberate. Mostly it hasn't. You know, publishing being the business that it is, you know, you, you take what you can get. 
Uh, I guess in a perfect world, you could be writing a, a long book like Ashes of the Sun or one of the Shadow Campaigns, send it off for editing feedback, and then knock out that 70,000-word book in the meantime. That's actually almost exactly what happened with um, Thousand Names and Forbidden Library. We sold Thousand Names. We sent it to Jess Wade at Penguin, who was my editor, um, and she you know, it took a while for her to edit it. Um, and like, by the time it came back, I had essentially finished Forbidden Library. And then we sent that off as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that's impressive. Well, I, I guess another question is just potentially on the same lines as talking about critical feedback. But what's it like to have a spouse who is also a writer? <laughs> it's very useful in many ways. And we do do feedback for each other, although it varies sort of what we need. I often... What I often get from her is like at a very early stage in the book, I'll just need to like talk through some problems. And she's really good at suggesting plot and character fixes, especially character arc stuff. And the other way around, I tend to read more of her like close to final drafts um, as a kind of sanity check before she sends it out to other beta readers and, and to get my feedback. Um, so everybody's process works differently and everyone sort of needs feedback at different points. Um, but we've kind of negotiated that. Um, but the best part is just having someone who kind of understands what that's like, you know, I'll come in to her office and she's like, Oh, is something wrong. And I'll just be like, mm, writing is hard. And she'll be like, I, okay, I get it. Um, kind of don't have to say more than that. Right. Um, and vice versa, you know, there's always days when you're like, ah, God, this is awful. Why am I doing this? Yeah, I think too many uh, readers have this like fantasy in their head that writers sit down and just are like driven by the muse of inspiration. And like it's all fun and sunshine and rainbows and not any actual blood, sweat and tears. Oh, God, it's not it's not like that. Well, and it's actually kind of a failure mode you see for for novice writers is if you have this idea that it's always going to be fun, then it can be difficult because then the first time it's not fun, you're like, oh, no, what am I doing wrong? Right. Have I lost my muse? Am I going astray? And like, it's not always fun. It's never always fun. <laughs> There's just no, especially novels. Like you may be able, like if you're writing like poetry or short stories or something like very short stories, you might be able to just sort of only write when the inspiration takes you and, and get to the end of something. But like a novel is kind of a marathon. And so there's just a certain amount of like, you got to show up and bang on it all the time. Like I, for me, it's every day, but like, it doesn't have to be every day, but like at some regular interval, you have to bang on it. Yeah. Um, otherwise you'll just never get to the end. I'm always jealous of, uh, the people you see on Twitter who are like, Oh yeah, very productive Saturday knocked out 26,000 words. It's like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a little much. <laughs> Um, but you know, it, it really depends. Like I write every day except for weekends. Um, and that's what works for me. But I always tell people, you know, you got to find what works for you. Um, my spouse is much more sort of bursty than I am. So she'll, she'll write often, you know, once or twice or three times a week, but do many more words in that time than I do. And I know people who only write on Saturdays one day a week, but they spend like eight hours doing it, which for me would drive me crazy. So, you know, you, you find whatever it is that lets you reliably get words on a page and get to the end of a project. Yep. Yep. I think that's key. 
Well, speaking of getting to the end of our project, your latest project, Ashes of the Sun, is out now. So I guess, can you give us a pitch for it? Yay! So Ashes of the Sun is about two siblings living in a sort of post-fantasy apocalypse world where there was a high magic civilization that has completely collapsed. And the younger sister is discovered by the Twilight Order, which are the, the order of magic users, essentially. And they say, you have the potential to be one of us, so we're taking you away to train you, and you don't really get a choice in this. Because they, you know, they're the ones with all the magic swords, who's going to stop them? Um, and the brother gets really pissed off about this and tries to interfere and is kind of badly hurt in the fight that follows. And so 12 years later, Maya, the younger sister, has grown up to believe in the order, which, you know, is is dedicated to using magic to kind of defend what's left of civilization. And she sort of believes in them and their mission. Whereas Geyer, the brother, has gone in the opposite direction and is convinced that they are a bunch of brutal tyrants who don't deserve the position that they have been granted or taken for themselves. Uh, and so he sort of goes off to join the rebels and look for forbidden magic in the sort of hidden corners of the earth. Um, and so the story starts or, you know, gets going when the two of them finally get back together through various plot things that I won't spoil here. <laughs> yeah, that is a uh, far more compelling and coherent pitch than how I've been trying to sell my friends on it. I've just been saying, uh, guys, read this. It's like Mad Max Jedi versus Mad Scientist Werewolves. I mean, it's not bad. Um, <laughs> you know, there's definitely a lot of elements in there. I mean, Star Wars, obviously... You know, I think the whole thing initially came about because of Star Wars. I've talked about this in a few other places. I wrote a, an essay about it for Chuck Wendig's blog, if you go look. But the gist of it is, if you look at um, the Star Wars prequels, the Jedi start their training when they're like five. And the Jedi are an order of ascetic warrior monks. And so like five-year-olds can't like really voluntarily sign up for that. And so... I wanted to, you know, Star Wars has the force and it guides people. So it's not really like a world building problem for them. But like, I wanted to create a universe where I could sort of examine that dynamic in more depth when there wasn't this sort of fallback of a sort of semi-divine destiny telling you what to do. Um, and so there's some of the key features came from that, you know, the order and the the fact that your magic is built in and, and genetic. And also it the other part that came from Star Wars is like, where does the authority come from? Is the fact that you're born with awesome magic powers enough to grant you authority? And should it, you know, because it's something you see again in the Star Wars prequels. So this is part of what I mean by saying they have good things in them, because there's a lot of this really intriguing stuff that, you know, the Jedi aren't exactly in charge of the Republic, but they're also not not in charge of it. They become the generals of its army during the war. And is that because, you know, they're guided by the Force and they have wisdom? Or is it because they have lightsabers and no one can stop them? If you've ever played the, the MMO, The Old Republic, there's a bunch of musing on this in the Sith storylines, which is really interesting. So that's the Star Wars part. And then Mad Max... I wanted to do this this sort of post-apocalypse, and in particular, in fantasy, you see a lot of fallen civilizations, but they're almost always 
like very fallen and haven't left much trace. You know, there's usually like some ancient ruins or like, you know, the occasional weird tower or something, but like most not more than that. But in this case, I wanted the fallen civilization to be essentially the equivalent of a modern civilization. And so even hundreds of years later, there's just this stuff everywhere, right? As there would be if our civilization vanished overnight, right? There's there's big chunks of metal and concrete all over the place. And these people are kind of living amidst the ruins in a Mad Max way and kind of repurposing things to be useful to them. It's omnipresent. There's no place in this world that was not touched by by the wreckage. Yeah, I know I uh, particularly enjoyed like, oh, there's this massive super weapon that landed here and it still occasionally kills people 400 years later, but we're going to build our city around it. Right. We're building our city around like the equivalent of a nuclear blast crater because it's still warm there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, you know, it's cold here. It seems like a good place for a city. Yeah, stuff like that. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a fun setting to play with. Yeah, and uh, so I know in the storyline, I've seen a lot of epic fantasy stories with more viewpoints than I can keep track of. I think some have had like literally hundreds. Oh, God. Or, you know, there's the opposite side where it's a more personal story and it's just single narrator the entire time. And now that I think about it, I'm actually not sure if I've really read many dual point of view stories before. So what kinds of challenges did you face by constraining yourself to just two points of view? It's actually been really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it it sort of naturally suggested your, itself when I came up with the plot. You know, we I could have done it as a five or six point of view story, but it seemed easier or sort of structurally to make more sense to do it with just two. Because in a lot of ways, this is... It is the kind of more personal single point of view story. It's just two of them simultaneously, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's not like Game of Thrones where we're sort of hopping across the world to take in the political machinations of a dozen different great houses. It's very much Geyer's story and Maya's story and that's it. So that kind of seemed like the natural way to do it. It does cause problems on occasion, Largely when you need someone to see something that there's no obvious way for them to see, that can be tricky. You know, you have to work with, you know, people getting information in other ways or just shifting like the location that something happens so that your main character happens to be there, which can feel like cheating if if you do it too often. So you have to be very careful with it, um, stuff like that. There's also some stuff with travel times. Like Maya cheats a little bit on travel times because the order has access to this gate network that lets them travel instantly all across the world. But Geyer largely doesn't. And so I just finished book two and there's there's a part where I had to like carefully work out like, oh, God, how long is it going to take Geyer to get from point A to point B by wagon (laughs) and like make sure that this actually worked for the plot? Yeah, that was kind of a fun contrast as well with the travel times, because you would see occasionally Maya's like, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing and then teleport 98% of the way to the destination. And Geyer's like, meanwhile, on the second chapter in a row of going through the snow. (laughs) Yeah, walking through the mountains. Yeah, well, it's convenient if you have teleport gates, um, you know. 
it's one of one of the many things that the order kind of keeps to itself rather than shares with everybody on the grounds of expediency but like maybe that's maybe that's correct and maybe it's yeah not. and i think that's just one of those uh world building things that like you were saying you can design your world around exactly the type of story you want to tell um with ashes of the sun it feels like you kind of play fast and loose with subgenre classifications uh, and just kind of had fun with the world building so were there any things in particular that you really enjoyed working on for the world yeah a bunch i mean the thing about subgenre classifications is subgenre classifications are for readers and not for writers right as a writer I mean, that's that's being glib and like I probably shouldn't be that's not literally true, but it's you mean you don't write to market. Yeah, I mean, because there's the question of like writers do have to adapt to reader expectations, but like largely speaking, the writer should write what they want to write. And subgenre things are things that readers come up with to help other readers find books that they want to read. Right. So that things are put into a subgenre largely to to address the problem of, I liked book X, what other books would I like? But like, as a writer, it's not something to take all that seriously. Some people take it too seriously. But yeah, there's a ton of little world building touches in this. I mean, the book just has Star Wars blasters in it. I mean, they have a magical power source, but that's basically what they are, including the fact, the wonderful thing about Star Wars blasters that makes no sense is that the... uh, the shots seem to go very slowly. They travel like a little bit slower than arrows. And so uh, it's not clear why they're more effective than just like a regular gun, but we have them anyway. And so that's a lot of fun because then it, it makes your fight scenes very pyrotechnic because things are exploding all over the place. I got tired of writing about horses after Shadow Campaigns, which Shadow Campaigns has horses because Napoleonic Wars has horses and it's a very important part, but I don't actually know or care very much about horses. I'm not a horse person. Some people are horse people. That that would explain the giant lizards and the birds. Yeah. In this book, I decided they didn't have any horses or they have some, but they're like very rare. So they have giant lizards and birds and uh, tortoises and a bunch of other things. And uh, that was a lot of fun. They're, you know, it's like they've got chocobos. They've got, you know, riding dinosaurs, not literally dinosaurs. They're more like iguanas. But uh, and the nice thing about those is then you get to make up their behavior and habits and diet and all what you need to do them. And no one can tell you that you did it wrong. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, Flying ships, which is something we'll see more of later in the series. But they have they have like flying airships. And there's one of the cities in Ashes of the Sun that's just it's like the, the flying ship, which looks vaguely like a UFO, is sort of crashed into the ground at an angle and the city is built underneath it in its shadow which I just thought was a really cool idea for, a, you know, a place people would live since like scavenging for crap inside the flying ship is, is obviously a good way to make a living. What other good world building little bits that I put in there? There's some good banking stuff, although a lot of that got cut. <laughs> by you or by your editor? <laughs> by me. The problem with world building stuff is that often you get a little over involved and then like, you have to take it out because you're like, nobody cares about architecture or whatever. It's boring. But I got to do the glossary at the end of the book, which I always kind of wanted to do one. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I, another fun world building thing for me, I don't know if this actually has any story significance or if you were just doing it because it was fun, but you'd randomly have people who are like, oh yeah, we're not going to do uh, blonde hair. We're going to say you have green hair. 
Yeah, everyone has anime hair and eyes in this, right? There, there is actually, like, weirdly, there is a plot reason why that is the case and why people have strange hair colors by human norms um, and why a bunch of the animals exist and other things. Um, you'll see when we delve into the, the history of the sort of fallen civilization, how this stuff came to be. Great, yeah. And uh, I have some of my own theories on that, but I don't want to dig in too much in case I might be right and spoil people. Yeah, so one thing I've noticed both uh, in this book and the only other series I've read by you so far, the Shadow Campaign series, is that uh, both include queer characters with lots of agency in the story. And so I'm wondering, how do you go about approaching writing your queer characters? It's a little odd to say... I don't, I feel like I don't approach it that differently than anybody else. I always feel a little uncomfortable talking about this because like, I am not a queer person and I don't have that experience. Uh, so, but at the same time, in a fantasy world, if I say that, you know, this is a queer normative fantasy world, then that experience is not all that much different than anyone else's i'm trying to speak carefully here because i don't want to you know take away from anyone's experience and i don't want to to step on any toes but but i feel like as a as a straight person in contemporary america i would not want to write a story about what it is like to be a queer person in contemporary america because that's an experience that i would at the very least have to like research super heavily and is probably not like one i should be writing about but in my fantasy world, it's easier, if that makes any sense, you know, because in this world, they don't have the same kind of prejudices we do. And, you know, that's just the, a choice I made when setting this world up. It's different in shadow campaigns where there's at least some prejudice against queer people, although probably not as much as we have today. But in this story, since there's so much other stuff going on in terms of the character's identity, the story is essentially this sort of philosophical dispute between Gaia and Maya about the nature of power that I thought it would be better to just have, you know, have this not be an issue in the story. It's not something that Maya worries about, you know, Maya is queer and Gaia isn't, and, you know, it's, it's just fine. And, you know, as someone said to me, you know, in terms of, you know, queer stories or, you know, any kind of, of marginalized people stories, you know, we need both kinds, the kind where it's, you know, marginalized people struggling to overcome oppression, but then also, you know, not that, <laughs> that where things are actually fine. And, you know, it's not that either one of those is the correct form. They're both needed because those are both things that we want to depict. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a sort of long-winded way of saying that in Ashes of the Sun in particular, I feel like I didn't go into it as this is the depiction of a queer person that this isn't. It's just characters who have love interests of particular genders or otherwise. I mean, the only thing I'm always, always trying to be careful with is to have enough representation of queer people or any other sort of marginalized subgroup that you can have nuanced characters in that group without people, 
you know, feeling like this character has to represent the whole of that group, you know, and you have the one queer person in the book, then if they're a bad guy, then people are going to be like, eh, and then, you know, that becomes a problem. So the answer to that is just to have enough characters that, like, you know, there can be some bad people and some good people, like, you know, normal humans, like everyone. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, that's probably the better decision than consciously choosing not to have any characters like that in your stories because that's that's also a very real decision well and that's that's a there's a whole can of worms there but yeah i i don't think that's a decision that is i wouldn't do that let's that's that's my hot take i'll leave it to other people to say whether that is a decision people can do overall but i wouldn't write a story like that Absolutely. Uh, well, to stop grilling you on uh, such... It's hard because, you know, I, it it's an area where I always try to be humble and be aware that I'm like the archetype of privilege, right? I'm a straight white man in who comes from upper middle class America. And so that is a position that is, you know, some things you should be talking about and some things you should not be. And, and you know, mostly you should be listening and, and doing your best. And so that's what I try to do. Yeah. So I guess talking about the magic in the book, one thing I really enjoyed is not only do they tie into those themes of power and who should get to wield it, but they both feel like they have clearly defined rules, uh, even if as readers, we're not always aware of what those rules might be. So how did you balance creating these two distinct magic systems uh, so that they are distinct, but they're easily understandable, but also kind of have that cool sense of wonder? Huh, that's interesting. Uh, it's, mm, let me think for a second. The magic sort of serves the needs of the plot, and that's kind of the, the initial step. But I am a person who likes to have his metaphysics worked out. And so the two magic systems in the book uh, are called Deod and Daka. Uh, one of them is the magic system of the Chosen, who had this mighty empire, and the other is the magic of their enemies, the ghouls. And I sort of build them around a central organizing principle. And in this case, the idea of Deot is that it is sort of calling power into the world and manipulating its form. Um, they call it the power of the sun or the power of creation. Whereas Daka is about manipulating living things, uh, living organisms. Um, and so from those things, the kind of edges and restrictions arise sort of naturally. So like the main restriction of Deot, which is unbelievably powerful and can be used for everything from flying ships to magic teleport gates to blowing up mountains is that you have to have a Deot user there to call the power or nothing will work. Um, you can store it for a little bit, but it'll eventually run out. Whereas DACA, because it's, it allows you to manipulate like actual life, um, you can create systems that will work indefinitely. And so the, the ghouls have what are essentially biological robots that they can create and use. And so that's, that's a big part of it. And so Dea doesn't really interact with biology, so you can't like heal someone with it, um, whereas Daka you probably could. And that, so you see how the, the restrictions sort of come out of the concept, I guess. Um, and so I, that's, then the trick is 
making it comprehensible to the readers. And that can be hard because, you know, magic by its nature can be very sort of arcane and involved. It helps if your main characters don't always know all the details, uh, both in the larger sense of like they don't understand the magic completely, which helps with sense of wonder, but also if they're not the magic nerd who knows everything. So like Maya, our protagonist, is a, a centaur, so she wields Deat, but she mostly wields it to blow things up and shoot fireballs at people. Um, and her her girlfriend, Beck, is a arcanist who works on what they call arcana, which are like creations of the the chosen that they use as tools to do various things. And so Beck understands way more about this than Maya does. And so like a lot of the like it lets me elide a lot of the like what would be the technical detail by having Beck sort of say something incomprehensible and Maya's like, well, I don't know what she's doing, <laughs> but she got it to work. Right. It's a little bit like in a in a contemporary story, if you have a character who's like a computer hacker, but they're not the main character, then you can not have to like tediously explain computer hacking to your audience because your point of view character doesn't understand it. Yeah, it's almost like a techno babble without having to worry about angering the small fraction of people that are like, no, that that's like nonsense. That's not <laughs> how that works. Um, actually, it's something similar in uh, in shadow campaigns. Uh, one of my favorite little cheats was I don't really know very much about boats and sailing. Um, and they're not a huge element of the story in Shadow Campaigns, but there are a few times when people are on boats. And it's obviously very complicated, right? Because this is the age of sail. So there are some books, like the Aubrey Martin books, where sail is like the central thing. And it's like, you know, the details of it are like crucial to the plot. But that's not the book I was writing. Um, and so... Basically, I just have the main characters be completely ignorant of it so that, you know, Winter's on a boat and she's like, well, the sailors are doing nautical stuff, I guess. I don't really know. They're pulling on ropes and things. And then I can avoid having to go into detail about something that is ultimately not all that important to the plot, but also tediously complicated. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's definitely one of those things that as readers, you don't normally notice that behind the curtain. You just kind of like accept it and be like, yeah, you know, they probably understand uh, as the author exactly how all of this works. Yeah, the the author's job is to give this sort of veneer of understanding, but like actually it's only deep in the places it needs to be deep. You know, the ideal world building is a little bit like a um like a movie set where like looked at from the point of view of the book, everything looks legit, but then if you actually were to go around the side, it's only just like a paper screen. It's not always achievable. Um, and I will say probably I think the most fun that I have with your world building is uh, the swearing because I a, a lot of times I feel like books go one of two directions. They're either like, no, like we're not going to swear, but we're still going to try to have our cake and eat it too and make up a lot of like fantasy words that are very sanitized or like, nope, no fantasy swears. We're just going to use like regular good old like English swears. Uh, but you kind of have both. Well, so... Swearing in most languages, but especially in English, comes in three basic kinds, the uh, sexual, the scatological, and the religious, right? And so if you're in an alternate world, but 
you are sort of basically translating into English, which is sort of how you think of this, since obviously you're writing the book in English. The sexual and the scatological are probably going to be pretty similar because people have the same bodily functions. It might be different if you were in a world with vastly different taboos. Um, you might have a different set of swears, but like this is similar enough. But the religious stuff is going to be very different, right? And it's partly just like what is going to jump out to the reader as unlikely so that like a character saying the F word is probably not going to throw the reader out of the book, but a character exclaiming Jesus Christ probably is. And so that means you need to think about the culture that you're talking about and you know, what they would say in the kinds of situations where people say, you know, for God's sake, or damn you to hell or whatever, in these sort of religious derived expressions that are threaded through our language. Uh, I I imagine that's one of the uh, more fun parts of world building, but maybe uh, I'm projecting. It's, It's a lot of fun. I always have a ton of fun doing the swear words, because I think you can tell a lot about a culture by the way they blaspheme in, uh, in some of my other books, in uh, Ship of Smoke and Seal, for example, you have people from a variety of different cultures that are all sort of gathered together, and they they swear differently because you know some of their cultures believe in hell and some don't, and they have different gods and blah blah blah. And so working that out was a little complicated, but a lot of fun. And that's why I so we're not allowed to use standard English swear words. <laughs> so I had to work up new ones. I, I guess kind of off topic, but for YA, is it like a strict none of those or is it kind of like the PG-13 rating where you can get away with like one? It's really up to the editors and the editors in turn are just sort of trying to gauge what like the people who buy YA books for like libraries and stuff will. Yeah, accept. that makes sense. Um, like the actual teens are not going to care if you swear, but you know, you you're trying to sell to a lot of parents and school librarians and they sometimes object. So it varies from editor to editor is basically what it comes down to. But the general rule is no swearing. We did in the second ship of smoke and steel and well, or uh, city of stone and silence. There were a few places where I could use shit. If I was referring to actual poop, <laughs> that was allowed, but not as an expletive. So I'm not sure why, but it's fine. But yeah, you know, I invented some swear words, which is, is a time honored technique. Although every so, every so often someone complains about it in a review and they're like, what's with all the invented <laughs> swear words? And I'm like, well, we can't use the real swear words and people are still swearing. So you're going to have to. Yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's not handled as as nicely as I would have liked, but I always have fun with it. So obviously the best place for readers to start with your work right now is Ashes of the Sun, of course. But for people looking to give some of your other books a try, where would you recommend they start? I'd say, well, so obviously Forbidden Library is middle grade. So if you're if you're looking for middle grade, that's where to go. Uh, I, I think of like Harry Potter book one as about the sort of reading level that I targeted Forbidden Library at. So if you either ha- have kids that are about that level or enjoy that kind of book for yourself, as many adults do, including me, then that's that's always fun. Shadow Campaigns is closer to Ashes in terms of its sort of size and complexity. It's a little more grounded in real life. Um, it has less sort of obviously fantastical elements uh, so it, that's the place to go if you want 
uh, sort of political intrigue or military stuff, especially military stuff, since it's a kind of military fantasy series. So a thousand names is the first book of that. And then uh, Ship of Smoke and Steel is the first book of my Wells of Sorcery series, which I'm, I actually really like. And, you know, some people are, are prejudiced against YA, and I urge you not to be prejudiced because YA is awesome now. There are many, many wonderful YA books that I read in prep for this. So if you've been like, I don't know, that's YA. Is it really hardcore? Then, like, I promise you we decapitate, like, two people in the first four <laughs> chapters. Um, but uh, Wells of Sorcery is similar to ashes in that it has a lot of the kind of slam bang magical duels in it. It has a much sort of higher magic system with people who have very effective combat magic. And that's kind of the main focus of the story. So they're fighting each other or they're fighting monsters. So that's a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with those stories. Yeah. Well, uh, moving away specifically for a moment from just your books, are there any books where say you really admire the world building and can recommend or failing that just, Books you'd like to recommend because maybe you've read them recently or they've stuck around in your head for a while. You know, it was on my mind of the of the YA I read and I, you know, I went through a whole reading list when I was getting into YA, um, courtesy of my wife, who is a big YA reader and prepared it for me. Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows is absolutely wonderful. And that was, you know, there are many good ones, but that may be my favorite. Um, And it has some wonderful world building to it. So I always recommend that to people. Another one is... This is not YA. Uh, Max Gladstone's Empress of Forever, which came out last year, and I think has been a little overshadowed because Max and uh, Amal El-Motar wrote the amazing This Is How You Lose the Time War, which has kind of like won all these awards and it's a novella. So it's like a little more accessible, but like, I feel like people have forgotten that Max wrote this other novel last year and it was great. And it's like lesbian journey to the West in the deep future with like, starships and an actual alternate computing dimension called the cloud and all this wonderful (laughs) stuff um so if you ever want a book in which the monkey king fights facebook like this is the book to read and it's great and you should all read it let me see was there anything else pause for a second i'm looking at a list i also really liked um brian naslin's blood of an exile is a really good kind of like I don't want to say old-fashioned fantasy, but it's like a guy who hunts dragons and he's on a quest and he has some companions and it really just like hits all those notes beautifully. That was a lot of a lot of fun. I liked Saad Hossein's The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday is another novella that really oh, this is one I was looking for. Um AK Larkwood's The Unspoken Name is this great it's hard to explain, but like it's got multiple worlds and they have ships that travel between worlds. And it's this this uh, character's sort of upbringing and her training as a kind of an assassin. And it's just this wonderful world design. If you like something like Malazan Book of the Fallen, but you, you know, in terms of world design, but you want things a little not 10 books long um, and a little sort of, you know, fewer characters like Try uh, The Unspoken Name. I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah, The Unspoken Name, I've actually read that. And I think that's probably the closest I've seen to, say, like the Tolkien races flying around on spaceships and kind of a space opera. Yeah. Um, Which is not really accurate, but in a way it kind of is. There's no space, but there's like different worlds connected by. Yeah, and they fly around in like these airships. Weird maze dimension. It's good. Yeah, it's fun. Well, uh, back to your books. Are there any future projects that you can talk about? 
There's a few, although there's probably more right now that I can't talk about. So in November, I get to write I wrote a story for a Star Wars anthology, the second uh, from a certain point of view anthology, which is was amazing to me. Like fanboy me is like super squeeing over it. Um, and I'm really excited for that, partly also because I haven't read any of the other stories in the anthologies and the table of contents is amazing. They have so many great authors on it. And so I'm super psyched to like get to read them for myself. Um, so that's November. I think you can look it up, but that should be a lot of fun. Um, in January, the third book of the Wells of Sorcery, the final book, comes out. Um, I don't. It might, the title might be Siege of Rage and Ruin, but I'm not 100% on that yet. Um, but other than the title and the cover and such, the book is done. Um, my part of it is done, so that's all ready to go. Um, and then I turned in Ashes 2, which um, uh, my editor, Breet, had a baby. Uh, congratulations to her. So it's going to be a while before we get to the editing and stuff uh, when she eventually comes back from some well-deserved rest. But once we do, uh, it should be around this time next year that that comes out. And then I have to get to work on Ashes 3. Then there's some other things, but they're not really sealed yet. So I can't Well, I think uh, one other thing that's sort of sealed, I, I actually don't know if you have a story in there or not, the Silken Steel Anthology. I think you helped put that together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let me not forget about that. Yeah, we I do have a story in there. Uh, we put together this Silk and Steel anthology based on a piece of fan art that someone talked about or posted on Twitter. Um, and me and uh, my friend Jennifer Mace and uh, an editor, a friend of mine named Janine Southerd, put together a Kickstarter um, because people were responding like, man, I want to read that story. And we were like, well, you know. Um, and it, it worked, it's worked out really well. I think almost all the stories are done or close to done. Um, and we're kind of finalizing the TOC and that should ship out in November. So I do have a story in that, which is a lot of fun also to write, but, uh, that's been really interesting to get a taste of the like publisher side of things, even if in a relatively small way. Yeah. And, uh, for people who maybe missed out on backing a Kickstarter, will they still be able to pre-order that or is that Kickstarters first? Uh, you can pre-order the eBooks right now on Amazon if you look for Silk and Steel, um, and wade through the the uh, other books with that title, which are mostly romance novels. Uh, and there will be physical copies for sale, although we don't have them up for pre-order yet because we don't have all the details. But it'll definitely be up for sale on Amazon and in other eBooky places um, when when that ships in November. Fantastic. Uh, and then the last question I like to ask people is just, what's one thing you're really excited about right now? Right now? Well, I just finished putting together my new computer uh, after my last computer's graphics card exploded. Oh, no. Well, yeah, there was like a weird burning smell, and then I couldn't run in any 3D mode or the computer would crash. So that was that was bad. So I built a new computer because uh, it was about time. It had been five or six years uh, and I'm still kind of tweaking it to get it to work, but now I can play computer games again. So that's, that's been very exciting for me. You know, we take what we can get here in pandemic times. <laughs> yeah. Especially any, uh, fun of the indoor variety. Yeah. So I look forward to, it was slightly delayed, but I'm looking forward to, um, cyberpunk 2077, which, uh, should run nicely on this new machine. Fantastic. Well, Django, this has been so much fun. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Django Wexler on Twitter as at Django Wexler or at his website, DjangoWexler.com. If you're looking for a book with lots of flashy magic battles and mysterious world building, 
looked no further than Ashes of the Sun. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're close to hitting the milestone where we'll release our very first bonus episode. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.